Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we connect your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special Famelab Australia Finals edition, you'll hear three and a half minute talks from young scientists around Australia explaining their research in clear English without slides. Famelab Australia is organised by the Foundation for the Western Australian Museum. FameLab is an international science communication competition to find and mentor young researchers to share their stories with the world. For the pandemic, people are recording their talks at home and they're being posted to YouTube. The national winner, Cody Freer, will represent Australia at the International FameLab competition at the Cheltenham Literature Festival in October, competing against scientists from around 25 countries. Madeleine Ferrari from the University of Sydney was awarded runner-up and Nishtani Duggan, also from the University of Sydney, won the online public vote. Here are most of the FameLab Australia 2020 finalists, with the remainder next week. My name is Cody Freer and I'm from the University of Queensland Faculty of Medicine. My presentation is entitled Out with the Old, In with the New New in Pediatric Burns. Often it begins with an accident. In Ellie's case, it was a spilled pan of hot oil, causing serious burns to her arms and legs. When I first met her in the Children's Burn Center, she impressed me not only with her resilience, but her in-depth knowledge of the Teletubbies. This girl could get a PhD in Tinky Winky Dipsy Lalanka. While undergoing treatment for her burns, she would reenact the scene from episode 67, a classic, where an ever-growing mass of tubby custard threatens to overwhelm the Teletubby home before this guy, their sentient vacuum cleaner, Nunu, swoops in to clean it up and save the day. Actually, the scene was a good analogy for what was taking place inside Ellie's burn. Thermal injuries, like custard-related disasters, are highly dynamic. Ones that might at first appear small can grow in severity due to the body's own rogue immune and clotting responses. My PhD focuses on a medical treatment called negative pressure wound therapy, uh, which uses a pump to apply a vacuum to the wound environment. Essentially, it's a new new for burns in children. The vacuum is hypothesized to improve healing by removing rogue immune cells, decreasing swelling, and directly stimulating the growth of new skin cells and blood vessels. This technology has been widely used in the treatment of other wound types, but it's never been properly studied in the setting of burns. To fill the gap, I performed a clinical trial comparing the current standard of care, antimicrobial dressings, to a combination of standard dressings plus negative pressure. I tracked over 100 children throughout their recovery, and when all was said and done, those with negative pressure fared significantly better. They were 83% less likely to require long-term management, and if given negative pressure within 48 hours of their injury, healed an average of three days faster. Three days. To put that in perspective, you can watch 173 episodes of the Teletubbies in three days, which I'm sure a lot of parents in isolation are right now discovering. Now, there are some technical issues with the apparatus that could be improved, 
But healing three days faster means one fewer painful and expensive dressing change. More importantly, a reduced risk of permanent scar formation. See, for the almost 1,200 children in Queensland who sustain a serious burn every year, scarring is a major and potentially life-altering risk. It can affect development and require repeated surgical operations. Which brings me back to Ellie, who didn't receive negative pressure. The last time I saw her, six months after her burn, she wasn't pretending to be Nunu. She wasn't playing at all. She was too worried about people seeing her scars. Scars caused by spilled oil and a chaotic biological response that couldn't be controlled. I hope this research helps pave the way for improved burns care and provides a new new to children like Ellie who don't deserve to bear lifelong scars because of a simple accident. Do you have high expectations of yourself? Do you push yourself to do the best? And do you also tend to be a little bit self-critical from time to time? If you said yes, you might be a perfectionist and you might be interested if I were to tell you there is actually a way to keep the benefits of being a perfectionist, like being driven, being motivated, accomplishing your goals, but whilst also avoiding the costs of perfectionism, like being self-critical and, and even experiencing depression symptoms. I'm Maddie Ferrari. I'm at UCID doing a PhD on self-compassion. So what actually is self-compassion? I'd like you to think for a moment about a time today when things went wrong. For me, you're actually looking at it. I put this background on Zoom and I have no idea how to get rid of it. But moments like this are breeding ground for self-criticism, right? The self-critical voice popped up for me. Maddie, you're an idiot. No one is going to take you seriously at this fame lab thing with a frozen background. How could you be so ridiculous? Why did you put it on there in the first place? But I know for a fact that if it was a good friend who I cared about, who I loved, who I wanted to see do well in life, who was in this situation instead of me, I'd never say those things to them. I'd be supportive. I'd make jokes. I'd put it in perspective. I'd say, look, even if you've stuffed up, I still think you're a wonderful person. And self-compassion is all about directing that compassionate wisdom that we have that we send outward to other people, but turning it inward to ourselves. But what does the data say? So some colleagues and I ran a large study with over a thousand participants online, and we got these participants to fill out questionnaires. So firstly, we looked at perfectionism and depression. And unfortunately, we found a really strong predictive relationship there, meaning that if you're a perfectionist, you are at high risk of developing depression symptoms because of that self-criticism. But when we looked at the group who were very perfectionistic and also had high depression, we looked a little deeper, and this is where it got really interesting. In that group, the people who had low self-compassion had a very strong link between perfectionism and depression. But for the people with high self-compassion, that link was actually broken. So what's interesting about that is you could retain the benefits of being a perfectionist, like being driven, being motivated, but this, the pattern with high depression symptoms was broken. They didn't also experience depression. So what this tells us is that for the perfectionists out there, keep doing your thing. But if you can start to also practice a bit of self-compassion, especially when inevitable failure comes along, because we're only human, 
that will actually protect you from the costs of perfectionism. So my final comment is if you wouldn't say it to a good friend or a pet who you really cared about, like Leo here, then why are you saying it to yourself? Hi, I'm Nisha Duggan. I'm a PhD student at the University of Sydney. And the title of my presentation is A Surprising Treatment for Stroke. When people think about Australia, they often consider three scary animals, snakes, sharks, and spiders. And perhaps the most terrifying of these creatures is the infamous funnelweb spider. A bite from this species could kill you in just 15 minutes. However, there have only ever been 13 recorded deaths from funnelweb spider bites. And actually, there is something else that starts with the same letter as those scary creatures that kills over 1,000 times as many Australians every year. Stroke. Around 50,000 people will have a stroke in Australia every year. And around 35,000 will survive. But 90% of these survivors will have some kind of permanent disability from the brain damage caused by stroke. But what if I told you that that scary fun web spider might actually be able to reduce this number? Let me explain. Stroke occurs when blood clots block the flow of blood in the arteries to the brain, meaning brain cells cannot get oxygen. When this happens, a biological switch is turned on that tells brain cells to die. This switch can remain on for hours after the stroke has occurred, leading to widespread irreversible brain damage. So where does the scary spider come in? Well, funnel-up spiders produce a venom that is made up of a complex mixture of molecules. Recently, researchers in Queensland have discovered that one of these venom molecules has a remarkable property. They found that in mice models of stroke, this spider venom molecule could turn off that biological switch telling brain cells to die, thereby reducing the extent of the brain damage caused by the stroke. This is an amazing result and has the potential to become an incredibly important drug. But if we are really going to use this spider venom as a medicine, we can't keep milking spiders forever. So instead, as a synthetic chemist, I'm trying to make this molecule in the lab. I'm working out the right combination of chemicals to put together so that we can have enough of this molecule to test in humans. The other thing that I can do is to make the exact venom molecule, or slightly different variations, which may have even better properties. And I'm sure that if one of these becomes a treatment for stroke, that scary funnel web spider won't seem quite so scary after all. Tonight, you'll have heard from many amazing scientists. You'll have heard what great innovations the future will hold. You won't hear that from me, because instead, I'm gonna talk about the past because what we're going to answer over the next three minutes is, can you hear the Big Bang? Hi, I'm Samuel Hinton, and I'm at the University of Queensland, and let's get into the details. You may have heard that in space, no one can hear you scream. And it's true, it's true for space now, but it's not true for space back when we care about, back just after the Big Bang. You may know that the universe is expanding, and if you think about all the matter in space, it's spread out over this vast cosmic distance. But let's stop 
and rewind the clock. If we go from a universe that's expanding and go back in time, suddenly it starts shrinking. And all it takes is a universe small enough, and space no longer looks like space. It looks like Earth's atmosphere, thick and dense. If you keep going even smaller, it changes again, and space suddenly starts looking like the sun, a fiery ball of plasma, soup, energy, and matter. In the primordial fluctuations just after the Big Bang, quantum mechanics, aka magic, says that some parts of the universe have just a little bit more mass than other parts. Now, because the universe was a fluid way back then when it was super small, that means that those over densities can spread out. It's like sound waves in space, like popping a balloon that you put extra air in, like ripples on a lake. Now, as the universe keeps expanding, these ripples expand along with it too. They're traveling just like sound waves until they get to a point where the universe has now gotten large enough that space doesn't look like a fluid. It looks like space as we know it. And suddenly these acoustic waves get frozen in time, like a lake that's snap frozen. All the ripples stay in there. But these ripples, remember, the ripples are over densities. And that means that, well, if you have an over dense piece of the universe, it has more matter in it. More matter means more gravity. More gravity means that more stuff happens, more structure forms, more galaxies and more stars form. So those regions of the universe have more galaxies than other parts. So if we want to hear the remnant of the Big Bang, we can't do it with our ears. We have to use our eyes. By mapping out galaxies in the universe, we can carefully reconstruct those acoustic peaks that I was just talking about. And that's where my work comes in. I model these peaks and create the analysis pipelines to make sure that we can actually do the science in a finite amount of time. Stuff has to get done and it has to take less than the age of the universe. Now, we do all this stuff because those acoustic peaks tell us great information about dark energy and dark matter, two mysterious components of the universe. Now, Unfortunately, I don't have time to delve into what we think they might be. That's an hour-long lecture by itself. But the very, very short story is that we don't know. And that's fairly simple, but you know, we don't know. Hopefully in the next decade we will know, and I, I promise you that you'll be the first to know when we know. Hi, I'm Emily Brogan from Edith Cowan University. Due to recent events, this presentation could also be titled Isolated for Life. I want to demonstrate what it would be like if you were unable to speak. So for the duration of my talk, could I ask you to squeeze your lips together tightly. Being able to talk, share ideas and communicate is part of who we are and it's the foundation for all our relationships. Aphasia, is a communication disability. It's common after a stroke. Aphasia affects reading, writing, understanding, and speaking. Aphasia is caused by a blockage in neural pathways that make up words. Some people with aphasia can't send a text message, make a phone call, or talk to the person next to them. They can't say, I love you. We can only imagine the frustration. There are more Australians living with aphasia now than Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy and muscular dystrophy combined. Much like COVID, we don't best know how to treat aphasia. We don't have an injection. 
What we do know from research is that people with aphasia can get better. Treatment needs to start immediately and everyone has a different recovery. What I want to know is what parts of speech therapy will help someone with aphasia best in their early stroke recovery. I've watched many therapy videos looking at what therapists do and how patients respond. In a standard 40-minute therapy session, my research has identified three dominant ingredients. The patient talks more, the patient makes fewer mistakes, and the therapist gives as many hints as possible to help them find the words. These ingredients happen about 500 times a session. What we need to know is what ratio of these ingredients will give the very best dose in early stroke recovery. Some people with aphasia may take months to find their very first words. It is a painstaking and frustrating process. Aphasia research is still in its early stages and there is so much to discover. So when you're social distancing, spare a thought for those who are always distant because they have no words. Your isolation will end. Theirs possibly won't. You can relax now. Thank you. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Hi, my name is Dr. Daria Kratt. I'm from University of Western Australia. And the title of my talk is No More Bad Leaders. Have you ever had a bad boss? 75% of employees will say that interaction with their leader is the most stressful part of their day. Bad leaders avoid taking decisions, avoid making actions, and micromanage. Most people seem to know pretty well what bad versus good leadership looks like. So I'm really fascinated to find out why then many people will engage in these bad leadership behaviors. So my research looks into leader identity or self-definition as a leader and how this leader identity impacts on outcomes. When I was reflecting on my own leadership experience, I actually noticed that even though I'm sort of an expert in leadership, I also made some bad leadership decisions and bad calls. So why is that? So we can think of leader identity as being hidden in our cognition. And our cognition operates in two modes, intrinsic, extrinsic, implicit, explicit, slow, fast, conscious, subconscious. So identity can also be implicit and explicit. So when we want to measure someone's explicit leader identity, we just simply ask them, are you a leader? Turns out many people will actually say yes. And why not? Leadership is associated with status and prestige in our society. So of course people want to feel like one. But it turns out that these people with high explicit leader identity are also more likely to say that leaders should be domineering, pushy, and manipulative. These people will also choose to engage in leadership only if they see benefit for themselves. So on the other hand, we have intrinsic identity. And measuring implicit identity is a little bit harder because we can't ask. 
but we can make participants take part in a word sorting task and assess identity in that way. And so my research has shown that those individuals with higher implicit identity will actually strongly disagree that leaders should be pushy and domineering. These participants also indicate that they are less likely to engage in bad leadership behaviors, such as avoiding decisions, being unavailable to their followers, and delaying action. So it turns out that being a better leader means having this deeper health belief that you are actually one. And when I reflect on my own experience, I can see now that I was not sure about being a leader, and that led me to being rude and pushy with the people that followed. So how can we train someone to be better or have stronger implicit identity? We need to do more intense training and more immersive training, and that can be costly. But hopefully the outcome of that will be that 75% of people will say that interaction with their boss is the best part of their day. Hi, my name is Lynn Nazrit. I am a PhD candidate at the Menzies Health Institute at Griffith University. And the title of my presentation is Discovering Ways to Protect Your Brain. Your brain is an amazing and complex organ. There are around 100 billion nerve cells in your brain, which is almost equal to the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. The thing about the galaxy, though, is that it is always under attack and it needs guardians to save the day. Your brain, just like the galaxy, is also under constant threat. There are evil supervillains trying to enter your brain and destroy it. These supervillains are bacteria and viruses that use secret passages to cause brain infection. These secret passages are the nerves inside your nose. Research shows that brain infections can progress into diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or even multiple sclerosis. The question I ask you is, can you protect your brain? This is where my research comes in. I look at the nerves inside your nose and I focus on the cells that surround them called glia. Glia support your nerves and help them grow. But I have discovered that they can also protect your brain. I isolate glial cells and grow them. I then challenge them with the bacteria that has been linked with Alzheimer's disease. I then study their fate and response after this encounter, I found that glia were capable of killing and destroying almost 90% of the bacteria that they encountered. After eating and degrading these supervillains, glia release danger signals or cytokines in their environment, alerting all the cells that there was trouble in the neighborhood. I now look at the mechanisms that glia use to recognize, eat, and degrade bacteria by studying the genetic structure of these cells. My hope is to make this process of killing bacteria even better. Imagine, instead of trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's, 
Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, we might be able to prevent infections leading to these diseases. Just a little bit of help. That is all they need. These pesky pathogens will no longer be a pain. The super glia in your nose will forever protect your brain. Listen next week for the remaining FameLab Australia finalist talks. In the final decade of the 21st century, men and women in rocket ships landed on the moon. By 2200 AD, they had reached the other planets of our solar system. Almost at once, there followed the discovery of Kuiper Drive, through which the speed of light was first attained and later greatly surpassed. And so at last, mankind began the conquest and colonization of deep space. That's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.